The following sermon is from Grace Church East County. More information about Grace Church is available at gracechurcheast.org. Let's come on back, take your, your Bibles, your Bible app, return to the book of Revelation again, chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2. We'll be starting in verse 18 this morning, but before we, we start, Amindy is going to pray for us and uh, read our passage. Good morning. I'm going to pray just to open up our service. Father God, we invite you here. I love that our, that our uh, messages are Christ amid the churches. Lord, we invite you. We know that this church would not exist without you and without Christ and his death and resurrection, which we got to celebrate last week, Lord. And we just, we want to rest in your presence. We want you to be glorified. We ask that you would be glorified through our fellowship Lord, we pray that you would be with Dan as he communicates your word to, to those that are here, Lord. We pray for those that aren't here. Lord, we just pray that as we are here, that we would that your spirit would flood us and fill us with your truth, and that as we leave and go through our week, that your truth would remain in our, in our lives and in our minds and the things that come out of our mouths and the, the ways that we behave, Lord. We pray that, that your truth would, would reign in our hearts. Lord, we just thank you for... Um, your promises, your covenant promises to us, and we rest in those. And may you be glorified through the reading of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Revelations 2, 18 through 29. This is to the church at Thyatira. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say... I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from the Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The reading of the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Mindy. She's got it down. I don't even have to take care of that. Turn it off and everything. There's a, there's a famous poem that, that I remember from when I was young, and you've probably heard it by Robert Frost, um, the Two Roads poem. It begins, two roads diverged in a yellow wood. Sorry, I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as it could to where it bent in the undergrowth. He's, he's describing these two paths he sees while he's out for a walk in the woods. Um, 
Nothing distinguishes one from the other. You, you don't know what's at the end of each of those paths. And the poem concludes, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. It's romantic and mysterious, isn't it? This choice of a less traveled path made all the difference. What, is, what does that mean? It seems to say that the path we choose might be so important that when we come to the end of our lives, that's the thing that's going to make all the difference. But, but does it? Does the road we take in life matter to anyone other than ourselves? Does anybody care if I take the road less traveled by? Maybe that question resonates with you this morning. Students, young people here listening, have you really thought about the path that you're taking in life, the, the road you're choosing in that, in that wood? Maybe you have thought about the path that you've taken in life and it's not working out for you the way that you had hoped. Perhaps, fellow Christian, you're on the path of following Jesus and it is hard and it's tiring. And you just, you have to ask yourself, like, does this really matter? I think that God in his word to us the book of Revelation this morning is gonna answer that question. And he says, yes, it does matter. Who cares which path I take? Jesus cares which path we take, whose works we do. He cares which way we live. That's our big idea this morning. The Lord who loves us cares how we live. The Lord who loves us cares how we live. So let's turn to the passage and see that main idea in two parts. First, we're gonna see simply the Lord who loves us, the Lord who loves us. Let's read verses 18 and 19 together. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. These are Jesus' words. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. So one of my recent obsessions has been bringing home orchids that nobody else wants from Bridge of Hope. I'll go there on a Saturday morning and I'll show up at home with, with a couple of uh, derelict orchids. The last one or two, I've had to sneak into the house to get them by Melanie because there's been so many. And we've had them for over a year. Uh, as these orchids have stopped blooming, we've cut the stems off and I keep waiting for one of them, just one, there's like 10, to bloom. And finally last month, one sprouted the tiniest little stalk. I was so excited. And so was Melanie. She likes them too. And we've been watching that orchid every day. The sprout became a little bud. A stalk grew. Bloom started to grow on it. In some way, I, I really love that orchid. I think that's how Jesus is with his church, with the church of Thyatira in our passage, but also with us here, Grace Church. Do you notice the way he introduces himself? Look back at verse 18. He calls himself one who has eyes like a flame of fire. The son of God sees clearly, he sees clearly what we do and he sees why we do it. Jesus, Jesus examines his church like I examine that orchid, turning it around and around, delighting in them from every side. We just sang about that this morning. I love the song. I love the words, those he saves are his delight, precious in his holy sight. Jesus delight in us, okay? I know your works, he says, I know how you are living. What does he observe? He sees love and faith, service and patient endurance. 
love for Jesus and for each other that blossomed into acts of service towards one another. They had faith, they had trust in Jesus and who he was, what he had done. Faith that empowered their perseverance through hard times. And not only that, he could see them growing. Just like that orchid, he would watch them getting bigger and bigger over the last couple months. Look back down at verse 19 with me. What does Jesus say? He says, your latter works exceed your first. Not only were your works good when you were a young church, but they've been getting better and better. I've been watching you keep going and your way of life has grown and grown. Now, here's how I can tend to respond to hearing those words. Sure, I think, you may see some good things I'm doing, but there's so much more I should be doing. Jesus, maybe you don't know how poorly I've done the things I'm supposed to have been doing. Or maybe you hear, I know your works and you think, I'm not working hard enough. And the things I am working at, I'm failing to do. I wanna encourage you from Paul's letter to the church at Philippi as, as we think about this. Paul wrote to the Philippians, therefore my beloved, work out. Yes, you have to work your own salvation with fear and trembling for, because here's why you can work. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is at work in us to help me and to help you do these good works that he sees. And remember, he sees perfectly. Jesus is not seeing something that isn't really there. No, he is seeing good works that are there. And Grace Church, this letter is God's word to you. He sees your love. He sees your faith. He sees your service. And he sees your patient endurance. Um, as, as one of the elders, it is a privilege to just be exposed to the tiniest little bit of what is going on in this church, the service and patient endurance that characterizes you. And I wanna encourage you that Jesus sees every bit of it, pieces we will never see. And I want you to feel your Lord's love and approval this morning, dear sisters and brothers. Just, just one brief point of application here. I, I gotta tell you, my, my nature is to be overly critical of myself and of others. And as I worked on this message, the Spirit really convicted me. Um, so I, I haven't loved my family, my kids especially, or my friends the way that Jesus loves us. I, haven't, I don't look carefully to spot every small growth, every increasing piece of faith. So I just wanna encourage all of us this morning Let's ask the Spirit to help us love one another this way, to see the good first, no matter how small, to look at our parents, our friends, our children, our spouses, just the way that Jesus looks at us and loves us. If you're in Thyatira and you've heard the first three letters, you kind of know it's coming, don't you? <laughs> Maybe they were hoping they'd be like Smyrna and get off without a reprimand, but then whoever was reading the letter kept going. So next, let's see that Jesus cares how his people live. He cares how you live. I want to read this together, starting in verse 20. Look at it with me. Jesus says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. Jesus uses a stunning Old Testament comparison here. He calls this false teacher Jezebel. 
Now, if you're a Gentile in Thyatira, you're probably flipping through your concordance trying to figure out who this person is. But you're a Jew in this congregation, you are shuddering right now, okay? Jezebel was the heathen wife of Israel's most evil king, Ahab. The book of 1 Kings, in a heartbreaking verse, tells us there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. But here's the main reason why he was so evil whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. This daughter of a Canaanite king that Ahab married for wealth and for power encouraged her husband to lead the nation down the path of evil and idolatry. Now, the city of Thyatira seems to have been a hotspot for these business guilds that controlled almost every part of the job market. Um, They demanded participation in the worship of local deities, worship that would involve feasting on meat, sacrificed to one idol or another, and eventually sexual promiscuity. Do you guys get the picture of what life was like in Thyatira? If you wanted to work in Thyatira, you had to eat what everyone else ate and you had to do what everyone else did. Can, can we relate to that pressure, that, that pressure around us that conforms, that might threaten our relationship? It might threaten our community. Maybe it even threatens our livelihood if we don't do what everyone around us does. So if you're a Christian in Thyatira, what are you supposed to do? Well, according to this self-proclaimed prophetess, you just compromise with the standards of your city, live the way that they're living, and still be okay with God. This is why Jesus calls this woman Jezebel, because she was teaching God's people to do evil. She was teaching them to do evil to turn away from God to false worship. Now, in in music, there's a term called transposing. I know Philip's very familiar with this. You take a piece of music that's written in one key and you move it up or down the scale so it's easier to sing. And I think we need to do that with these two sins here this morning, sexual immorality and food sacrifice to idols, because it's easy to think, like, I'm not being tempted to eat a steak sacrificed to Zeus every day of my life, right? Like, this just doesn't happen. Or we're Christians, So we aren't sexually immoral like those people out there. It's easy to say those are back then out there problems. And I don't think Jesus wants us to do that. Instead, I think we need to ask what this looks like in our own key. We need to transpose this, right? What does this look like in our own context? How how are we tempted to compromise Christ's standards of purity and true worship in order to better align with the world around us? Let me ask that again. How are we tempted, how am I tempted to compromise Christ's standards of purity and true worship in order to align with the world around me? How about my own personal sexual ethics? Are we going along with the world standards because they're easier and we don't see any harm in them? Our culture says, hey, listen, sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, moving in together before you're married, having an affair, just isn't that big of a deal. It can be financially beneficial. It can be relationally satisfying. You can, you can still do all that and be faithful to Jesus in your heart. I wonder if some of us find ways to excuse or even justify engaging with pornography. After all, the world around us celebrates it, holds it out as good. Am I? Are you being tempted to compromise Christ's standards of purity that way? Or maybe, maybe we find ourselves tempted to compromise the fruit of the spirit in order to gain political power to believe that love, kindness, self-control, and all the rest of the fruits are simply just ineffective in today's political environment. Do I excuse myself 
when I react in anger towards someone who doesn't agree with me politically, even a fellow Christian? Do I begin to feel as though it's okay to, to write off relationships with other people because we're on different sides of the political spectrum, to see them as enemies instead of brothers and sisters? And I wanna be honest with you, these, those are real temptations for me right now, real challenges that I'm experiencing now and over the past few years. And I have to see them for what they are. Those are temptations to turn away from true worship of Jesus to worship politics, to worship being right. Those are just two possible areas. There's plenty of other things where we need to listen for the Holy Spirit's conviction in our lives to see where you, where I might need to be challenged, where we're compromising. So two brief suggestions on how to avoid this seduction, this temptation to turn away from Jesus' paths. One, be willing to open yourself up to hard questions and be willing to ask your friends hard questions. What's, what's influencing you? Your friends, ask me, what's influencing you, Dan? Are, are, is what that is helping you along Jesus' path? Or is that influencing you off of Jesus' path? Also consider, like, does this teaching I'm listening to promise me things Jesus never did? Health, wealth, an easy life. If it's starting to sound like that, you need to take a step back and go, this doesn't sound right. Remember Jesus' words, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. The gate is narrow and the way is hard, but it leads to life. Okay, so what's Jesus going to do about this false teacher and her followers? He cares how we live. Let's look back at the scripture. Look back at verse 22. Verse 22 tells us Jesus will judge. He will judge the works of Jezebel. Behold, he says, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead. We don't know for sure, but it appears that some of the people in this church were kind of, kind of flirting with this false teaching, maybe trying to have one foot in and one foot out of this world, maybe check it out a little bit. Okay, God promises discipline meant to bring his children back to his ways. That's how he always deals with his children who he loves. He disciplines us to keep us in the right path. But there are those Jesus calls her children and threatens them with death. And this is, this is serious business. We don't know, we don't know from the passage whether these were Christians who, whose sin was so grievous that its consequence was physical death. Think Ananias and Sapphira or some in Corinth. Or whether this punishment showed that they were really never true believers who had looked for a time like they were part of the church. Which, whichever of those it is, let's take this for what it is. This is a sobering warning not to be seduced into choosing to walk the road of evil, to walk the road of disobedience to our Lord. Now, as, as a brief aside, I wanna say something about the label that Jesus uses here. Calling this false prophetess Jezebel was a sign of just how disastrous her teaching was for the church. Remember, Jesus, with eyes like a flame of fire, sees clearly and perfectly, and he accurately assessed the danger this person posed. But sometimes in the church, we've co-opted this term. We've, we've used the label of Jezebel to dismiss and shame women. Ah, she's, she's such a Jezebel. Stay away from that Jezebel for stuff that, that we just don't like. Maybe dressing in a way that someone thought was immodest. Maybe for pointing out abuse or speaking against a leader's sin. 
I don't think this passage gives us permission to use this label carelessly, as though we see things as clearly as Jesus does. I think what this passage does teach us is that man or woman alike, Jesus will judge anyone who leads his people away from his paths. But this passage shows something else. Jesus shows mercy here too. Jesus shows mercy. He had apparently given this false prophetess a chance to repent and she refused. She turned away from that chance. But to those who followed her, Jesus still holds out this offer, rescue from the judgment that awaited them if they would only repent, if they'd only return to the road of obedience to God and his word instead of this easy path of compromise. Jesus judges sin to be sure, but he often holds out mercy for a long, long time. You may be here this morning, you're not following Jesus, not walking his way. Maybe instead, like all of us have at one point in our lives, you've chosen your own path. God created us to trust and to follow him and the road apart from a walk with God is sorrow and judgment at the end. But this passage holds out hope this morning. God calls all of us here to turn away from our sinful ways and follow him. And maybe he's calling you this morning too. Jesus, God's son has made a way for us to follow him in obedience to God. If we trust in him to forgive our sins, if, if you hear God calling to you this morning, the way of salvation, if this is new to you, please talk with someone here. Talk with one of us here after the service. We'd love to help you understand, understand this good news. Well, we've seen that Jesus judges those who do the works of Jezebel, but how about the rest of the church? What does he have to say to them? What does he have to say to us this morning? Let's look back at the passage starting in verse 24. Verse 24, let's read it together. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan to you, I say, I don't lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. He gives them the same contrast that we heard in the letter to Pergamum. Hold fast, hold on to the true teaching, stay on the right path, don't hold on to the false teaching that leads you astray. Then he goes on to verse 26. I want you to see this with me. Let's see this in verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. As with the other churches, Jesus promised rewards to those who conquered. But in this letter, he adds a unique phrase that is the only time in these seven letters that's there. Did you, did you catch it there in verse 26? Look at that. To the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. Who keeps my works until the end. Recall our main point, the Lord who loves us cares how we live. Here Jesus calls his church to conquer, but here he does more. He calls his church to choose his works instead of the works of evil to choose the right path as two roads diverge. Do you remember verse 22? Jesus called the followers of the prophetess to repent of her works. Do you hear the contrast here? My works versus her works. My road or her road. So here Jesus promises, he promises to reward those who do his works, who walk his path. And these verses show us two gifts. Two gifts our Lord has for us, two rewards for following him to the end. The first gift is the gift of Jesus' authority. Look at verse 26. To him 
I will give authority over the nations, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. This passage, this is nearly a direct quotation from the second Psalm, in which God's anointed one, his son, is given ultimate authority over the nations. Just imagine how this would have landed if you're in Thyatira, if you're reading this. You're a marginalized and oppressed group, pushed around by the authorities, excluded from the powerful guilds that run the city, and yet, if you endure, if you hang on until the end, you'll receive Jesus' authority to rule over the nations. Unfortunately, John doesn't elaborate on what this means. He just says it and moves on. And most of the commentaries I've read say, yes, we're gonna rule with Jesus in the kingdom to come. But I have to ask, was this just a future promise for believers to hang on to and for us? Or is there some today application for this? You go through the New Testament, all the New Testament epistles depicted Jesus as ruling in heaven right now. And us as united with him, we're one with Jesus now, which I think means that we're ruling with him now in, in some way. So what does that look like in this age? What does it look like for us to use this gift? I mean, you don't want to get a gift and put it on the shelf, right? Like Christmas morning comes, you unwrap your gift and you like put it up on the shelf and don't get to it for like six years, right? We don't want to do that. We want to unwrap this gift and use it now. What, what does that look like? Well, I want to use the image that we use frequently and it's the image of an embassy, Okay. The United States has an embassy in Paris, France. That's a small outpost of America, a little piece of American soil right there in Paris. The ambassador isn't trying to take over France, just represent America. He has authority given to him by the president. He acts in the president's name. I think that's how we as a church are supposed to be here on earth right now. We're to represent the kingdom of heaven to the earthly kingdoms we live in. We speak and act with the authority of our risen king who is reigning now in heaven. But practically, what does this look like in our daily lives to use this gift of Jesus' authority? Let me give you a couple of ideas. We preach the gospel. We preach the gospel. We proclaim the authority and the kingdom of King Jesus. How about this? We help others enter the kingdom. We help them place their lives under the authority of the king. We make disciples. We help our fellow citizens live under Jesus' authority. And we do the works that Jesus did. Works of love and mercy, as the old hymn says. I, I think that's some of what it means to experience this gift of Jesus' authority right now while, while we wait for his final return. Then in verse 28, Jesus goes on to promise us something even greater than authority, much, much greater than authority. It's a small phrase, it's, it's really easy to miss. So I'm gonna read it together again, verse 28. Look at it with me. I, Jesus says, I will give him the morning star. What does, what does that mean? How are you gonna hand me a star? I can understand. It means, both simply and profoundly, that Jesus will give us the gift of his presence. This is the second gift Jesus gives us. He gives us the gift of his presence. I wanna be clear, this isn't just the presence of a humble carpenter from Galilee, somebody, somebody who's your, your friend. You see, this title, The Morning Star, draws on a prophecy from the book of Numbers way back in the Old Testament when a false prophet, Balaam, was supposed to curse God's people, Israel, and instead, he kept blessing them, and God gave him a prophecy. See, Balaam foretold, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. A star 
a conqueror with blazing glory and ultimate authority will one day appear. Jesus uses this title to describe himself a second time in the book of Revelation. In chapter 22, he says, I am the root, I'm the descendant of David, I'm the bright morning star. We're talking about the creator of the universe here. We're talking about the king with all authority in heaven and on earth, the very image of the invisible God promising that he will be present with his people. At the end of the road of suffering, self-denial, of persecution for doing Jesus' works, at the end of that road is Jesus himself. As Psalm 1611 puts it, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Near the end of Revelation, we get what, what I want to give you guys a sense here is it's easy to say, we're going to get Jesus' presence. I want to be with him. But what does that mean? What's that going to feel like? I want to give you a sense of what that's going to feel like, what it's going to be like. Revelation chapter 22, sorry, chapter 21 puts it this way. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I think that's at least a little bit of what Jesus means when he says, I will give you the morning star. I will give you myself. I will be present with you. Do you guys see that with me this morning? Overflowing joy, never-ending pleasure, no more tears. The gift of Jesus' personal presence with his people. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church East County. Please find us online at gracechurcheast.org if you would like to find out more about us.